Okay, so we're going to go ahead and get started. So it is my great pleasure today to have you guys here for um, Critical Care Grand Rounds. So we're actually in the oldest uh, medical school building in the country. This building's been in function and use since the 1800s. So I think it's an appropriate place to have a discussion about moral injury, which you guys will hear more about in a minute. Um, I just want to quickly introduce the speakers. They were nice enough to provide me with these biographies, but I want to keep it a little bit short to give them more time. So um, today we have Dr. Simon Talbot. He's an associate professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School, and he's an attending surgeon in the division of plastic surgery at Brigham and, uh, Women's Hospital in Boston. Um, and we also have Dr. Wendy Dean here with us today. So she's had a bit of a circuitous path with some training in surgery, emergency medicine, psychiatry, and some corporate experience as well. And they're gonna talk to us today about a concept that I think is tremendously important for all of us learners, faculty members, anyone who's running a division, um, or anyone who's at all involved in medicine, um, and that's called moral injury. So please welcome them here today. Well, good afternoon. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation to be here. It's really our pleasure. We are uh, incredibly excited to, to be in this building, but we're also incredibly excited to be speaking to you all about something that we're both uh, very passionate about. Uh, I'm hoping my voice will hold up through this, which is <laughs> Wendy is here to fill in if it doesn't. Um, anyway, I'll turn it over to you, Wendy. All right. So, um, we don't have any financial conflicts of interest, and these are our opinions. And the, the real thing that we want to say is that we could spend days and hours talking about how we got to where we are and what's wrong with the system that we have, but the reality is that won't really do us any good. We need to understand where we've come from, but we need to use our energy to build, to build what's new and to get change rather than um, to ruminate about what could be. So, um, as you heard, I'm a, I'm a plastic and reconstructive surgeon um, at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Um, I've been on faculty there for close to 10 years now. I'm also um, involved in research, so I have a very academic practice of both you know, complex extremity trauma patients um, and uh, nerve and extremity reconstruction that I do through the Department of Defense. Um, I trained originally in New Zealand, so I have a little bit of a different perspective on some of our health system issues out there. Um, and I also do a fair bit of work in the uh, developing world, so have had the fortune of seeing many different systems working and, and not working, as the case may be. Right, and as you heard, I have had a very kind of twisting path in medicine. And the reason that I went from surgery to emergency medicine to psychiatry, and then finally out into um, a different sector, is that I kept trying to find ways to take care of my patients the way that I knew it was, was right. I couldn't have named it at that time, but that's what I was doing. Um, and I ended up, in the last 10 years, working uh, to oversee research funding in the Army um, in regenerative medicine and hand and face transplants, which is how I got to meet Simon. And um, I also went and worked for a large nonprofit, which gave me the executive experience that I think is critical. Along the way, we both had personal stories of distress in medicine. For me, when I was at UMass, I was in the first wave of clinicians that John Kabat-Zinn decided should be doing mindfulness and meditation practice. So I remember spending a fair number of lunch time, lunch hours, lying on the conference room floor, learning how to meditate. And I, I actually found it quite useful, and I took it with me along the way as I've practiced. Um, but the more I, the further along that I went, the more I recognized that maybe that wasn't sufficient. And so I added in things like, you know, high velocity sports and perching on top of a 1,500 pound prey animal um, to try to you know, keep me focused and to get myself outside of medicine. Um, but I kept finding that no matter how many of those things I did, coming back into the clinic or the ER, um, all of that would be erased within about an hour. 
So my story is a little bit different. Um, I, I, I was extremely busy. I had a very, I have a very successful practice, um, but my institution decided that they were worried about our faculty, and so they made us all do the Stanford survey, uh, the, which is based on the Maslach inventory of burnout in 2017. And as I went through that, I realized that my score was close to zero uh, on uh, on uh, personal fulfillment and on uh, and about 100% on burnout um, by their metrics. And so I thought, well. Probably the, the thing I should do is, is learn about burnout, educate myself, and do everything I can to, to mitigate it. And so I went and read everything I could find. And I, uh, around that time, my wife and I purchased a house down by the beach. And I would go out running on the beach. And, and I would borrow the neighbor's dog because all the literature said that animals are good for burnout. And I connected again with the guy with the red hair there, who was a good friend of mine, who was a yoga instructor. He, he quit his job and became a full-time yoga instructor. And we would hang out and we would talk about yoga and things like that. And on the um, far right, I, I also employed a coach. And I said, maybe if I get a coach, that will, that will give me the, the teaching and the lessons that I need to know to move forward. And I was hoping someone would give me a silver bullet. They would tell me a sentence or a paragraph that would just fix everything for me. Um, and all of these things felt good while you're doing them, right? It's really nice to go on the beach and watch the sunset. It's good to take the dog out for a walk. It's, it's pretty fun doing exercise. It's pretty fun having someone tell you what's going on and what, what coaching things they can help you with. But every Monday morning, I'd come back into work and I would realize that none of it really made any structural difference to what was going on in my day-to-day -day work. None of it was changing the drivers of what was going on for me. So, you know, there are human costs to what we're talking about. There are human costs to physician distress, and these are some of those. We know that physician distress, whether you call it burnout or moral injury or just generically distress, um, has a turnover rate involved with it. We know that physicians leave significantly more commonly if they're feeling this way. In fact, the numbers are that they go from about 6 to 7% turnout per year to about 20 to 23% turnover per year in an academic institution. We know that physicians are less engaged and other clinicians as well. We know that teamwork goes out the window when you're just trying to get by for the day. And we know that all of these things ultimately impact patient care. And this is the really concerning statistic. So when I was working for the Army, I worked down the hall from the office that was managing the suicide crisis in the Department of Defense. And the leadership in the Army was horrified by the rate of, of suicide in service members and veterans of 22 per 100,000. And so then I, got, I read about a physician suicide and I got really curious and I thought, what is our rate? Because I had seen that it's 400 per year, but that doesn't sound like a lot until you do the calculation. That's 400, 400 a year in, 900, in a population that's about 900,000. It turns out that's about 44 per 100,000. That's a huge number. That's twice what horrified leadership in the Army, which caused them to put $100 million into research in suicide prevention, and it also caused them to shut down the Army for a day, which costs all, upwards of a billion dollars, so that everybody could learn what the risk factors were and how to prevent them. With, with physicians, we've gotten you know, do more yoga, go on a wellness retreat, code lavender, which is actually a real thing. You can look it up. Um, and be more mindful. So at this stage, um, Wendy and I got talking together, and it was at that point that we felt that there was some need to reframe the conversation, some need for us to talk about this differently and think about this differently. So I'm going to give you a little background here. Um, burnout's not either of our favorite terms, but we need to talk about what it is so that you understand the differences from what we're talking about. The question here, what is burnout? Well, burnout is a set of symptoms. Burnout are symptoms that include exhaustion, cynicism and detachment, ineffectiveness, and lack of accomplishment. So three sort of core parts to that. And the ultimate result of that being that about between 54 and 78% of clinicians have at least one symptom of burnout, one of those three symptoms. The cost to replace any of those physicians is about a million dollars a year in an academic institution, about a million dollars a year to have somebody retrained and do that job. And the result of physicians either committing suicide, changing jobs, or leaving permanently is that about 900,000 patients in the US need to find another clinician every year. So some people have said, well, why, why do we need to call it moral injury and not burnout? And we feel like 
That language is really important because what it does is it, it helps us frame our thoughts about how we treat this condition and how we reframe solutions to it. And the reality is that burnout has become kind of a muddy term. Um, it is not infrequent that I'm in a meeting and we're talking about burnout and people start, um, they start muddying the term by saying, well, this person threw a scalpel. That's not, that's not burnout. That's something different. That could be a behavioral impairment. Um, or there's the other condition, which is strain, that we're overworked. We're, we're, we've got you know, two kids. We've got um, a very busy job. Maybe our, our spouse has a very busy job as well. Um, and then there's this other piece where the business framework of medicine impinges on, on our ability to do the job that we want to do. So I want to ask you about your experience, because I think this will help sort of um, give you context. So I want you guys just to sit back, and I want you to think about the last year, the last year of you taking care of patients. And I want you to think, was there any time in the last year when something got in the way of you taking the best care of a patient that you knew how? That might be a medical record system that was just cumbersome, not very efficient, designed around billing and not communication. It might have been an insurance prior authorization. It might have been a lack of time so that you had a family member who you needed to spend time with but you didn't have the time left to do it. It might have been your um, institution saying you need to get to 6,000 RVUs or 8,000 RVUs this year in order for us to keep your salary the same. Those are just some examples. But think of in the last year, has there been anything, any time where something has got in the way of you providing the best care that you can for a patient. Put your hands up if that makes any sense to you. What about in the last month that happened? Keep your hand up if in the last month that's happened. What about in the last week? So that is moral injury. I want you to keep your hands up if you had them up a moment ago, and I want you to keep your hand up if you think that yoga would have helped that patient out. All right, so that's the crux of moral injury. So just, just out of curiosity, how many of you would have said that you were burned out before you came to this talk? Okay, just keep that in mind. Um, so the term moral injury was first used uh, for service members and veterans who were coming back from Vietnam and had symptoms that looked like PTSD, but that were, they weren't getting better with the standard treatments for PTSD. And so uh, some researchers started looking at it and saying, we think that this is a different wound. This is a different injury. And what we believe is that this is a moral injury, which is caused by perpetrating, failing to prevent, bearing witness to, or learning about acts that transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. So that's great. We understand that in, in combat, you might have to choose between your platoon and the eight-year-old kid who could have a suicide vest or a woman walking down the road. Do you choose your platoon? Do you choose your oath to protect civilians, right? So that becomes kind of a clear, it's a clearly drawn line. In medicine, what are those morally, those deeply held moral beliefs that we believe, that, that we hold true to? And those are our oaths. When we leave when we leave medical school, we take an oath. No matter what oath, you know, no matter what, which oath I looked at, each one of them has the patient as a priority. That we promise to put our patients as the priority. So what are the things that get in the way of those oaths? Well, there's, there's lots and lots of them, and these are just some, some examples. But these are the kind of things when we talk to people that they say are getting in the way of them being able to fulfill their oath of putting the patient first. There are quality metrics, some of which are very well-intentioned, some of which go, go overboard. There are productivity mandates from the different health systems, particularly uh, worsened by things like private equity starting to own hospitals and healthcare systems. There are people who are struggling with a health record system that's not just about communicating with the patient and keeping records, but has all of these other things in it that aren't about good patient care. There are patient satisfaction surveys where people are limited in what they can say to a patient for fear of what may go in their patient satisfaction survey. 
there are reduced staffing in the hospitals that we're at. There's a lack of autonomy, and this is particularly true in those people that are on the front lines of primary care, and there's less latitude to what we do. And so it's these kinds of things, these kind of examples that get in the way of us being able to do our moral duty of taking primary care of the patient. And so what does this get, what does this get down to? It gets down to, it's a double bind. You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. You take the best care of your patient that you can, and you may get yourself in trouble with your hospital who doesn't want you referring them to another tertiary care center. Um, you take care of your hospital, and your patient may not get the best care that you think you can deliver. And it's really come down to your money or your life in some situations. It's funny. I mean, it's a, it's a funny concept, but it's not so funny. The ultimate goal or the ultimate effect of this is that we build a brick wall. We build a wall between the patient and the clinician. And we all know that the relationship between the patient and the clinician is a critical one. It's an important part of why we, many of us went into medical school, and it's an important part that we teach our medical students this patient-doctor relationship. Um, and this brick wall between them. For any one of those reasons that I mentioned, and there's more up here, are the problem. But most of it's not one specific event. We all have events where we feel like we didn't provide the best care for a patient. Where moral inju injury really becomes a problem is when it's continuous little cuts. This is uh, up on the, the screen here is Ling Chi. This is an ancient torture um, called Death by a Thousand Cuts. And I think some of us feel like that sometimes happens to us at work, where every day you come in and there's just one little thing niggling at you, one more thing that's preventing you doing what you think you should be able to do or what you should be doing best for your patients. And fascinatingly, in this type of torture, the executioners would get an extra bonus if they kept you alive for more than a 1,000 cuts on your skin. And sometimes I think that resonates with us. <laughs> All right, so keeping in mind those of you who thought that you might be burned out, if we were to compare, you know, now that you've heard what you, what we believe moral injury is, this reframing of distress in healthcare, can I just see a show of hands who might think that rather than burned out, they might be morally injured? Okay. So we've gotten a lot of questions after we wrote our article saying, well, are you just throwing out all of the literature and all the study that we've done in burnout? And the truth is, we think that they're related. These are not two separate entities. And in fact, what burnout may be is stage four disease of moral injury. That when you are morally injured and you fight every day to get your patients the care that, they, that you think is right for them, it's exhausting. It makes you feel ineffective and cynical because you can't get the care. You can't get the systems to move the way you'd like. And eventually, it becomes intolerable to the point that you have to start depersonalizing. You can't empathize with your patients as much as you'd like because it's painful to watch them suffer the consequences of not getting, this, not getting the care. And that starts to sound an awful lot like burnout. As um, Wendy and I discussed this between ourselves um, in the middle of last year, we uh, crystallized some of these ideas and decided we would write about it. And we, we wrote this article um, that came out in Stat News in July of 2018, not flippantly, but really without having uh, expected quite how many people would read it. Um, so this article is called Physicians Aren't Burning Out, They're Suffering From Moral Injury. Um, and um, we wanted to test the water. We wanted to see whether people would say, hey, hey that, that makes sense to me, that's, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing. And while we don't have hard and fast evidence for a moral injury from a purely scientific point of view, what we did get was 250,000 downloads of that article, hundreds and hundreds of emails from people, some of which were truly heartbreaking. The family of physicians who had committed suicide, um, physicians who were leaving their job, uh, patients who found that they, uh, this made sense with them. And this has now become the fifth most read stat news article ever. Um, the important part of that is we at least recognize that there were people that believed in this and that there was some background to this. But we started looking and saying, well, is there, is there other evidence of this? Is there other, other things going on that would suggest that this makes sense to people? And the first thing that came out was another article, actually, another article on, um, on moral injury. And so I called up the author who happened to be in Boston. He's one of the middle authors is a, is a primary care doctor with us. And I said, hey, how come you took our term and then just wrote another article on it? And he said, I didn't. 
I submitted that article before your article came out. We totally independently came up with this concept and the same ideas and the same name entirely on our own, suggesting that truly other people were recognizing the same thing and recognizing the same concepts. So how many of you know Z-Dog? So um, he has a huge audience on YouTube, and some of you might know him as Doc Vader or Z-Dog MD. Um, and I think I learned that our, that our article had been published when I got his email in my inbox. It was the very first one that we got, the first response. And he said, this is, this is the language I have been looking for for what's happening to us for the last decade. Um, and then he put out, he immediately put out a kind of um, very informal video that night. And then about six months later, he put out this, this video. Um, and the notable thing about this is 7 million views in the first week and over 100,000 shares. So this, this concept has really broadly expanded. You know, being, being physicians, we felt there had to be some sort of science behind this, and we're actually working quite closely to try and get some uh, better data on, on all of this, so there's more to come. But um, this incredibly hard-to-read slide um, is our first attempt at putting together burnout and moral injury together. And, and what it shows is um, the gray line that slopes up to the vertical um, spaces are groups of 10 different clinicians. And the gray line is that one of their um, scores on burnout, so depersonalization. The orange is their um, exhaustion level. And in the blue was the same, was the score for moral injury. And so what we recognized was at least these things were tracking together, that the vast majority of clinicians who were feeling more burnt out were also scoring higher on a moral injury inventory. And we think that not only are they correlated, we think that the moral injury is causative of the burnout symptoms that they have. So the next question is, how did we get here? And I think the, the bottom line is that sometime around the seven, seven, late 70s or the 80s, there was a shift in medicine and how we delivered care and how we thought about the, the field as a whole. Prior to that, um, the patient had been the focus of the field and the patient clinician interaction relationship was very direct. And it was, it was, that was the crux of how we thought about medicine. In the early 80s, we started managing care and having managed care organizations. And since then, there's been a shift to focusing on the finances of care. And that has led to a gradual exodus of physicians from the decision-making um, positions in healthcare an increase in some of the administrative uh, perspective on healthcare, um, and it has it's driven us. We've also had um, IT increasingly complex IT uh, <laughs> systems that are impinging on health how healthcare uh, is delivered, and all of that has led to a very complex system of care that looks like this. When I first came across this, I thought it was a joke. But this is actually the diagram that the government drew so that we could all understand the Affordable Care Act better. Um, how's that working? <laughs> so what I thought was really, really ironic about this, and it's hard to see it on this screen, but the patient is in the bottom right corner, not in the center. The Secretary of Health and Human Services is in the center. The patient is on the right. The physician is on the far left with all that bureaucracy in the middle. And that really represented to me what we're facing in healthcare. So the upshot of all this is we've gone from a relational type of healthcare to a transactional type of healthcare. There are, we've gone from the system where we're thinking about, you know, how can I help you? What's our relationship between us? Generosity, acceptance, and a, a system of abundance into a transaction. The same sort of transactions we think about when we think about Amazon or going to a retail store, where this is about you know, self-fulfillment. Self it's about what's in it for me. It's about measuring metrics. Um, and if you haven't read it, this book by Timothy Hoff is a fabulous uh, explanation of how we've gone from relationships to transactions in healthcare. I think also with this has come structural disempowerment. We've eroded the autonomy of our clinicians. 
And so some of this has been intentional and some of it's been unintentional. The intentional are things like the business models we've set up, private equity buying healthcare systems, hospitals who are, feel very restricted financially. It's the marketing and the branding of our hospitals where this is uh, very different from, you know, just taking care of a patient because it's the right thing to do. And it's the focus on output that we have. And then there are some unintentional things that may have been very well-intentioned where we've got IT systems that aren't purely about taking care of patients where we've got a retail approach because many of us love using Amazon and we see that as being an easy translation into healthcare, but the result is that we erode the relationship between our physicians and our patients. And also the strong focus on compliance we have uh, now. And so overall creating a lack of autonomy for our physicians. So this is not to say that a lot of the healthcare institutions are not recognizing that there's a problem with physician distress. Um, and we are getting lots of recommendations. I'm sure some of these will sound familiar to you. Maybe not this one. Anybody heard of terrarium therapy? Where you build a garden in a bowl? This is, this is an actual email from we collect, the healthcare. Yeah, we collect these, so yeah. don't, don't send us emails about <laughs> stuff. Um, yeah, so terrarium therapy, um, and then there's the standard yoga meditation, uh, mindfulness, wellness retreats, um, there are other, that, and those are on the local level. On the national level, um, there are, you know, our national organizations are trying very hard to help us. The problem is that some of their recommendations might not be as useful as you look at because what they ask is that we add some inefficiency by creating more meetings so that you can change a light bulb. Um, that you plot your escape by taking leadership courses so that you can you can move into management out of clinical care so that and that you redouble your self-management so here's some examples of redoubling your self-management these are actual emails that, that were sent to me I, I copy them and I paste them into my presentations so the one on the on the left side there is talking about providing a sound bath of meditation using the Australian didgeridoo which for me is culturally insensitive coming from New Zealand. Um, the, the one on the, the right um, was about some uh, videos teaching people to walk in place and do Hindu squats. These are from my own institution. Um, and the, the last one there was, was, was thanking someone for resilience training. These are, these are well-intentioned, okay? We, we get that they're not, they're not intended negatively. We know that yoga is probably good for you. We know that exercise is important. We know that eating well is important, and we know that downtime is critical to our jobs. The, the problem is that we already know that. And the other problem is, of course, that most people at our stages um, are already very resilient. You've got through medical school, you've got through residency, you've got through fellowship, and you're an attending, working hard in an environment which is extremely challenging. The vast majority of clinicians have resilience in spades. And so these resilience type courses are a little bit like putting someone on a diet when what they really need is a lifestyle change. And that's how we see them being problematic. So how do we bring change? Um, on October 23rd, the National Academy of Medicine put out a 300 page report on um, taking action against clinician burnout, a systems approach. And one of the things that they said is that the evidence for systems interventions that significantly address clinician distress is limited. Essentially, they were saying, we, there's nothing that we know that we can definitively say we'll recommend, which suggests to me that it's not clear what works. The other thing that we want to be clear about is that there is a pathway to change. These are the eight steps of uh, leading change. The one thing about change, though, is that it doesn't happen quickly. There are eight steps here. And after about a year of doing, after about 15 months of doing this work in moral injury, we're only at about step, between step two and three. So it's not going to be a quick process, but there is a path. So Wendy and I think about change and think about the potential fixes here in three different categories, three broad categories. Valuing clinicians, valuing care, which means valuing the physician-patient relationship, and building community and working together. But there are a few assumptions um, before we get into those. The first is we want it to be clear that the problem is not with you all, 
The problem is with the system. It is not that you have done something wrong. It's not that you're not working hard enough. It's not that you just aren't good enough or resilient enough. You are all of those things. You are good enough. You are smart enough. You know, but it's the system that needs to change. Um, the National Academy of Medicine report I view as a mandate that we need to start working together and fixing things, and um, that there's no that maybe what we're doing now isn't enough or isn't correctly uh, targeted. Change is not going to happen without you. I would love us to be this knight in shining armor coming to save you, but we can't do it alone. We need everybody engaged in this fight, even in the smallest ways. And it'll take time, and we need to be aware of and, and really celebrate those small wins that we have, because one small win at a time gradually adds up. So how do you value clinicians? This is the first step. How do you value a clinician? Well, right now we've got a clinician who's accountable for all of the following things. They're watching the finances. They're watching the operations management. There's a whole lot of regulations being, uh, uh, being uh, regulated on them. They're responsible for safety and they're responsible for risk management. What if the system was turned around? And all of the different branches, the finance, operations, regulatory branches, safety, and risk, we're trying to ask, how do I make that clinician-patient relationship better? What can I do, what can our group do to improve the care of patients rather than to inflict things on a physician? The other question is, how do we think about clinician leadership? The Army spends two decades grooming somebody who's going to become a general officer. I don't think we, at this point, have a really clear path to developing leaders. And it would be really great if we had leaders who are still player coaches, you know, who are still in the game, they are still doing clini clinical work while they're also administrative. Um, I, know that, I know that there are a lot of them out there, but it's not always the case. Um, when, you're, when you're a player coach, you can walk into those executive meetings and say, you know what, two hours ago, I was trying to get the EHR to work and it didn't. Or I was trying to get this part of operations to talk to this part of finance and I couldn't do it. So can you help me make that happen? We also need to have leaders who have the right mindset. So I strongly believe that as an executive or as a leader, it is your job to break down barriers, not explain why they're there. And I think that there are some really great clinical leaders who are able to do that, and we just need to make sure that we build more of them. And finally, we need to be intentional about developing talent. Who has the aptitude, who has the interest, and let's push them forward and give them the training and the resources that they need to do that job. So the other thing that we need to get better at, along with that breaking down barriers, is developing boundaries and being able to say no. Um, I think physicians are so focused sometimes on making sure that the patient gets good care and that that relationship is taken care of, that they are willing to take on way more responsibility and, and to do way more things than um, maybe are good for us. And so being curious, why exactly do we need to do this one more measurement or why do we need to check this one more box? Um, isn't that something that we're doing over in this other bucket here? Can't we combine those two? Um, or, you know, just enough. This is one, this is one bridge too far. And if we can pull, come together with nurses and techs and physical therapists all together as a group and push back together, that might be the best path. So how do we value care? How do we value the physician-patient relationship? We know that the physician-patient relationship is the absolute cornerstone of what we do in clinical medicine. We know that doctors and patients value this relationship, and we know that satisfaction for patients and doctors is related to that relationship. And up on the screen is a small study from NYU where they looked at this and found that the primary care groups where they had strong relationships and they had individual one-to-one -one relationships 
were far better in terms of both patient care and patient and, uh, and physician satisfaction. We need to reverse the role of uh, administration in some of this. Now, I get that we need administrators, and there are some very important roles of administrators, but when you look at this graph, it's pretty disturbing. The red line is the increase in percentage of administrators since 1975. The gray line, which looks like the x-axis, is the increase in percentage of physicians during the same amount of time. And you can see every time we bring in another act to try and reduce the paperwork that we do, we have a dramatic increase in the number of administrators we have to help manage that paperwork. The point being that we currently have one physician to every 16 non-physicians. And of those 16 non-physicians, 10 are administrators. We need to reverse that, and we need to have administrators where the focus is on clinical care, or at least on trying to make care better for the patient and better for the doctors. And to go with that, we need, we need systems that help fa facilitate care. If we, if we had an uh, EHR that worked as well as an iPhone, probably none of us would be complaining about it, right? But we, they need user input, and they need to value the user experience. We need to go back to how we deliver healthcare, and this is a, an entire lecture on its own. We've had emails and phone calls from people in many different countries, New Zealand, Canada, UK, Australia, South Africa, Mexico, Germany, and now Japan as well, actually. Um, there are single-payer systems, government-payer systems, private insurance systems. Whenever you've got a situation where people are trying to do more with less and being squeezed by the payer or the provider or whoever it might be in the system, that's where people start to get uh, get get to struggle. We need to get back to what is really important, which is the oath we took and the moral belief we took to put the patient first and to take good care of our patients. And finally, we need to build community and work together. And this is again where the National Academy of Medicine report, I think, outlines it very clearly. Um, the report, the committee, the study committee very clearly said that multiple systems in healthcare need to come together, acknowledging distress is a problem, and fix it together. So how do we do this? Arthur Ashe, I think, was had a great saying, which was, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. You don't have to fix this whole problem by yourself all at once. So be mindful, I know that's a little ironic, of the, of the places where these challenges are, where you feel like you're in a double bind. Um, you know, start collecting those stories. Send them to us. Save them for yourself to use as an argument when you think about what is that one issue that really gets to you every day? What is that one thing, if you changed it, it would make a big difference. And start getting really curious about that. Use the public information that's available to you to understand how your hospital manages that one problem, how they are as a community partner, and how you can build an argument for change around those bits of information and that challenge that you have, that your colleagues have um, going forward. And then get behind the really good leaders who are in your community who will support your efforts. So here are some really concrete things. This um, QR code will get you onto our website. Take this survey that we have if you have time. Tell us your stories. Join our mailing list. The more we hear about this, the more we can spread the word on this, the more we can get people involved in this kind of stuff. And of course, there are ways to donate to the different organizations that are working on this kind of thing. Um, we have a Twitter handle and, and we're on LinkedIn as well. So if, if you're interested in getting more involved, we would love to have you uh, join us on some of these things. We would love you to continue to share the concept. We'd love to talk to people about this, do workshops on this. This is what, what keeps us going. Um, I think it's very important that we build a strong community on this, and it's very important that as physicians, we work together on some of these things because um, we are certainly stronger as a team. It's very important that we push back when there are problems that are going on and we make people aware of those problems. And as uh, Wendy had said, it's very important that we get curious about what's going on so that we think about these problems and work towards fixing them. So we'll get to some questions in a minute, but just to clarify and to tell you about where we're headed with this. 
I think our goal was to tell you the difference between burnout and moral injury and explain that moral injury is where you're trying to take great care of a patient, but there are things that are getting in the way. Burnout is a constellation of symptoms, which may be the end stage of that or may come from any number of different reasons. The big driver here, the double bind. The damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. How do we get here? We went from a relationship to a transaction. And how do we fix it? We value patients and clinicians' relationship together. We value the clinicians we have around us and we build a community to work towards a good goal. Thank you. Now we'll take questions. So that's a really good question, and, and, and we hear that a lot, uh, especially when we're talking about politics and changing our health system here. I think it's important to recognize that um, we have different drivers, and we have some things that are excessive, our electronic health records and our regulations and things like that. But bottom line is uh, all of these places have some element that is the same. In our system, it's you know a fight with payers to, 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 to not pay. In the UK system, it's the government asking them to spend less on taking care of those patients. So they have different drivers in different parts of it. We don't have data on the exact prevalence in each country because until very, very recently, we haven't had the way of measuring that, but we're, we're certainly working on it. But I don't think the system by itself is what makes the difference. It's what the drivers are behind the system. And, and so it's been recognized, the Royal College of Physicians in, in UK has actually recognized that moral injury is a problem for them. And they're they're actually working on it. I mean, they, they probably have been on suicide rates, right? Is so that the same in other countries? I, I got asked that yesterday, actually, and I was I meant to look, I meant to look it up. Um, we, I know where I've worked previously in single-payer systems and in government-based systems, there are similarly high suicide rates, and of course, there's a lot of confounding factors. Um, but we think that most clinicians, from the number of replies we've had from many different countries, are struggling with exactly the same problems. It's just their exact driver is slightly different. I imagine it's probably a similar situation you know, in terms of identifying prevalence among various countries in, in medical uh, or healthcare systems. So I'm going to go back to our, when we published this article, which was 15 months ago. <laughs> So the reality is that we have not had time to amass clear data about this. Um, but I was just speaking to a room full of operative nurses. And um, when I explained the burnout versus moral injury, about 85% of those who thought they were burnt out after the explanation of moral injury felt like it was moral injury. And, and sorry, and nurses are burned out at about 40%, not quite as much, but their turnover is high. Interesting to note the reasons why for each group as well, and whether the commonality is different, how it all based on the same source. Yeah. We're, I think the, we're just getting into the roots of actually studying this stuff now. Um, take our survey, tell us why you've got a problem, because that's really uh, a huge part of us figuring this out is figuring out where those pain points are. And obviously we started with clinicians, but I mean, we've had people from, you know, public defenders contact us and say, hey, this is a problem in my group. Clearly they don't have an EHR to worry about, but they have plenty of other things that are getting in the way of them doing their job as well as they feel they need to. And so, um, you know, I could give you countless examples of different jobs. We don't think this is limited to physicians, but we're trying to limit ourselves to physicians for obvious reasons. There are so many. <laughs> 
So I feel like talking to them about how the system works and the challenges of the system fairly early on so that they understand that it's not them as early as possible and that this is a common this is a this is a common um, situation where people feel like they're pulled in two different directions um, and oh by the way here are some strategies for thinking that through here's when you elevate that that issue here's when you ask for help um, I think early is earlier is better. We we also to, to that end, I think we we have a responsibility as people who are already neck deep in this stuff to leave this better than we found it. Right? I think if we're going to be training people and we're going to be having people follow us, and if we're going to be recommending medicine to young people behind us, we do have a responsibility to make sure that we leave this in a situation where it's tenable for them going forwards. And you know, we've certainly spoken to people at pretty high levels and in the medical administration trying to um, look at this at a very high systems level. Um, but, you know, not only do we need to educate them, we need to fix it before we get more people in trouble. One of the things that we would love to see is that there is a that administrators are somehow held financially responsible for clinician satisfaction. Um, that may be a long time coming, but I think that would be one of the metrics that we would look at. Um, the the it that really it, that concept is really a cultural change, and what that when I was so when I was an executive. Um, the folks who worked in my business unit were the ones who were the pointy end of the spear. They were out talking, you know, doing the work in the field. And so it became my job to make sure that all of the other business units were supporting, were working in support of my folks out in the field because they had the hardest job. And they were the ones who were responsible for our continued survival as a company. And so the patient, the patient clinician relationship all of the revenue in healthcare, almost all of it starts with a physician. So all of those 17 people have a very vested interest in making that relationship the best that it can be and the easiest that it can be and supporting the physician in doing that job well and flourishing in that job. Another, another important part of that is I think the other part which is a little hidden in what Wendy was saying is you don't have to have a you can still make a financial, financially be a financially responsible hospital, and take good care of patients. They're not opposite ends of it. Um, I was going to give one example. Uh, I was giving a talk yesterday, and somebody said, "You know, I understand what you mean when you say a good physician-patient relationship without all the crap." When I go to, you know, Kenya and I take good care of patients, and, and he gave a great example of no EHR, no documentation, all the rest of it. The example I like to give because I think people can relate to it is, um, you know, I was flying overseas um, uh, six months ago and um, three people actually got sick on the same flight and I was the only doctor on the flight. And so we set up a little clinic in the back of the plane um, and, you know, you can take good care of the patient. You've got all the time in the world. You don't have to have any documentation. There's no computer record. You don't bill them. I was like, this is, this is what healthcare is supposed to be like. This is one of those examples where you're like, this is getting back to me taking care of a patient without all those things in the way. There were no metrics, but they were pretty happy. I mean, it was a good experience. Now an executive 
So I, I appreciate what you're saying. And, and in some, I agree that being aware of that double bind is, allows you to make a decision about it. That's the first place to start, right? You're aware that I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. And so then you don't just react to that feeling of being trapped. You can respond with a variety of options, from a variety of options. But the, one of the other choices that you have is to call your chairman, to call risk management, to say, gosh, I'm in this trap where I have somebody who has Epstein's anomaly and you don't want me to refer them to the Mayo Clinic that does hundreds of them. We've only done two. What do I do here? So, right. Just make sure you share it in the appropriate place. <laughs> I mean, sharing it with the chairman and saying, hey, I'm going to push back because this is the right thing for the patient is one way of doing it. Sharing it with the patient and saying, go to the New York Times because they need to know that this is not an acceptable way to take care of you is another thing. And of course, one of the things that we have spoken about is, you know, when we get into a room of clinicians, they, they all understand what we're talking about. But I think there's a lot of patients who don't understand that they may not be getting the most fabulous care in the world because there's something getting in the way and their doctor can't exactly tell them what it is. Um, when patients realize what's going on in some of these places, it does open, open their eyes a little bit. And so making sure the patients understand that their care is being restricted in some ways is, is an important part of that. I appreciate how you try to shift the terminology to reflect more of a, the burden is, the fault is not ours, at what point is it appropriate? I may be overstating it, but I, I, it's, it's just kind of going through my mind. At what point do you take a step further from burnout to more like you're into abuse, frankly? I mean, it, whether by negligence or, or by intention, and that may, again, that may be an overstatement of the system, but I think by negligence and understanding that this is a problem, 
And as these systems not only you know perpetuate themselves, but worse in a lot of ways, um, a, a known uh, problem that exists. You know, where do we shift that conversation? So my concern with shifting that conversation to that language is that is very inflammatory language. And I think it becomes harder to hear. Um, so although there are certainly elements of that in what we're experiencing, um, I'm concerned that if we go to that nuclear option, um, people aren't going to be, the people who need to help us change are going to be able to dismiss us and are not going to hear what the true experience is. I think my question is, of all the views and comments and stuff that you guys have gotten, um, are they from administrators, or is it more from like boots on the ground, you know, providers that are reaching out to you, or are there administrators that are recognizing that there is definite burnout or you know, moral injury with the people that are caring for patients, or you know, are they actually responding? So tremendous number of people have responded, and some of them are administrators. And to be completely fair, there are administrators who struggle with this as well. There are administrators who feel, my hands are tied. Another layer above me is, is hamstringing me. Um, they're in this as well. I think we do need to recognize that we are all in this together. Patients, clinicians, administrators, all of the ancillary staff. I mean, we've focused on clinicians, but this is a, this is a problem that a lot of people are struggling with. I think it's also important to recognize that um, that when we say it's a systems problem, often when we, you know, it's a little bit like Eminem, right? We say it's a systems problem and everybody's responsibility is absolved. When we say it's a systems problem, it doesn't mean you don't need to do anything about it. It just means it's not your fault, but you still do need to do something about it. I just feel like, I, I feel like these little things that are happening, like coffee talks and, you know, wellnesses and stuff, like, like I feel like that's maybe like a band-aid to say, yep. like, I'm making So this and, is where the pushback is really important. Right. And, and, and maybe it's that, and, and maybe, you know, this is where the awareness, and, and this is where I, I sort of feel like we should be using mindfulness, you know, go to that training so that you are well aware of what's happening in the moment and what your thoughts are in that moment, which are, I hate this layout because it doesn't follow my clinical flow. And nobody asked me what my clinical flow was, and I want to go back to that. I want the user input so that the user experience is better. And we've had some places that have really done it well. You know, we, we've been, there are a couple of places that have really done that well. The one that comes to mind on that topic was a place where the lead administrator was also a surgeon, and when they came to him and said, this is what your workflow is going to be, he said, no, I'll take all my surgeons out of your hospital. And when they said, you can't do that, he said, for every click you want me to do, you have to take away a click. I have a net neutral number of clicks per day. <laughs> this is how many clicks you get. There are ways to push back on this stuff. We're not very good about doing it because it's just, it's difficult and we're not trained to do that. And we don't have in many places leaders who are, you know, invested enough to push back. But when you have a leader who's at the coal face with you, um, that's a much more palpable experience and they, and they can do it. Um, you know, there's so many regulations that are duplicative or that we don't need uh, that we can minimize. And that's a huge part of decluttering our lives. So, in, for example, um, one of the medical societies that we talked to, um, shortly after, we, after our talk, they, they pushed back as a medical society in, on behalf of all of the physicians in their city because there was going to be a required training for one, signa one, signa one single signature it's going to be a five-hour training. And they said no. They got a stay of that requirement, and they got invited to the table to help m make sense, make the, make the uh, requirements make sense. And they say, in the process, they saved you know, hundreds of hours and several hundred thousand dollars. Another example, uh, there's a handful of medical societies require, all of our medical societies, when you renew your license, require you to state whether or not you have had any medical reasons that may uh, prevent you doing your job adequately. The wording is different for everywhere. Um, some of them had a line in there about, have you had any psychiatric care, period. 
and that could be a black mark on your thing. So the medical societies were able to get the clinicians together to push back and at least have the concept tightened. So you only have to disclose it if it's impacting on your ability to take care of patients and things like that. So this idea of pushing back, this idea of having leaders who help uh, move the conversation forward is, is critically important to, to minimizing those problems. I'm sorry, that just do what with leadership? Um, are there other institutions that do a good job managing quality training? What are their policies? Um, yeah, so, so I think the ones that do the best job are the ones who have physician leaders and who ask the questions, who say, why do we need to do this? Why, why do we need a third metric for this, whatever this question is? Um, and who are able to, to have a, a relationship where they negotiate with regulatory agencies, with legislators. Um, you know, th this is not something that we can change within our hospitals. We need, to, we need to move out and talk to our legislators about policies or, or um, uh, any legislation that they are working on that will impinge on us. We need to help them write that legislation. Um, you know, we, we need to go outside of just our hospital. Yes, work locally, but also think more broadly about where can I help impact things that are going to make a difference in my life. So you, that's a fantastic example, and there's lots of examples like that that are well-intentioned and have kind of backfired. Um, you know, the use of um, meaningful use, right? Electronic health records are supposed to be fabulous, and look how fast it all got pushed out and then things didn't quite go as planned. Uh, patient satisfaction surveys online make sense if you're at reviewing your Amazon you know, chocolate bar, not so good if you're reviewing your doctor and you've got a problem with them or whatever. Um, these are all things that you know, have to be looked, have to be done very slowly and very carefully because the unintended consequences of things like patient safety are, are, are as you, exactly as you say, really problematic. Um, I don't think there's a quick fix to it. It's not like we can say, okay, now we're not going to focus on patient safety. But I do think that we need to look at those things very carefully and we need to have society, you know, our own medical societies need to be looking at when we've overstepped the bounds. The example in Massachusetts was publishing all of the cardiac mortality data and then if you had bad comorbid disease you couldn't get cardiac surgery in Massachusetts you had to go to a different state because nobody wanted you on their books as being a mortality so I think making sure that not only do we have our own societies regulate what's going on but also that we educate the public about the unintended consequences of some of these things so that it doesn't look like we're a, you know trying to hide and like we're trying to do the wrong thing but that people realize that you know there are some real negative effects to some of the things that are being brought out it's a slow chip bit by bit thing. So the other thing that I will say is, and I fought this as an executive as well, is compliance is always a fight with compassion. And I think it is very easy to swing way too far in, in the, to the side of, com of compliance because it's easy to track. It's easy to see when it goes out of whack. It's easy to know who's responsible. Um, but I would, I would ask, I would continually ask that question, why? What is the benefit? What are, what are we getting? How much is it going to cost us to get to that level of compliance? And what is going to be the impact on the patient of that level of compliance? Like, zero, I mean, there was just an article that was out the other day about faults. 
And so now, patients are not allowed to get out of bed, and they get deconditioned. It, like, it, it, so keeping in mind, you know. Common sense. Common sense, right. All right, so um, thank you guys for both coming. It was a wonderful talk. I think it's an important issue. I think it's something we should continue to talk about um, with each other, with our trainees, as a faculty, um, to look out for moral injury in the students and in, in ourselves. Um, and Dr. Zine and, and Dr. Talbot have agreed to stick around for the next maybe 30 minutes or so. If you guys have other questions or want to have more intimate conversations with them or want to share your stories perhaps about your own experience with moral injury, I'm sure they'd be happy to hear that. Um, and so let's just thank them for coming. The last person question is, is how much should 